0: I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. Good morning, Celtics fans. Welcome back to the Celtics Pod podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Adam Taylor. Will and Greg are both holding it down out in Boston at the moment. Um, they're dealing with some—I don't know what they're dealing with. They're just out in Boston. So I've been joined by Mr. Rich Jensen. He's a writer at Celtics Blog, former writer over at redsarmy.com. He's been very gracious to give me some of his time today, so we can talk basketball for everybody listening. Rich, man, thank you for joining me.
1: Hey, happy to be here.
0: Um, so you've come—you've like joined Celtics Blog after Reds Army shut down, right? So. How is that tra- how are you finding that transition is it is it much different to what you were used to or is it pretty much the same thing just different brand
1: um there's like when i was at red's army um my primary responsibility was i did uh two um weekly um news recaps um every morning um had to grab two or three articles um summarize them come up with some thoughts about them and um, so in one way, Red's Army was a lot less structured. I mean, I could write whatever I wanted. They, they didn't have a huge audience, um, and uh, so I could, you know, I could plug, you know, my alma mater in uh, college basketball from time to time. Um, but in another aspect, it was very structured. You know, twice a week, you had a deadline to meet, And you had to come up with something, even if there wasn't a whole lot to work off of. Coming over to Celtics blog, it's been nice because while there's a lot more um, editorial structure, I mean, for instance, I don't have to find my own pictures for the uh, articles. Um, The uh, um, flip side of it is that with basically being on a schedule where I can come up with, you know, I set my own schedule, I want to write about one piece a week. But what I write about is pretty free form. So that's been kind of a nice change of pace is giving up, you know, some of the um, anything goes aspect of Red's army, but getting back a little bit of anything goes with with Celtics blog.
0: And that's a nice little change of pace, right? Like coming from somewhere where it's like, I've been there, man, when you're trying to scratch your head, thinking, what am I going to write about today? Like, There's literally nothing going on in the world of basketball right now, and I need to somehow make content that isn't going to get slandered everywhere just for being too speculative. It's tough. (laughs) It it is tough. Um, No, I'm super, like, I've read some of your stuff. I love the uh, piece you did about growing up and becoming a Celtics fan and how that's impacted you. I thought that if anyone listening or watching this on YouTube hasn't actually read that, then um what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hyperlink it in the description, both in the podcast and on YouTube, so you can go back and read that. I thought that was a great piece. So that yeah, leads that... me on to sorry, Kerry.
1: No, I was gonna say that was that was a fun piece um to write that uh I I enjoyed writing that. So I hope people enjoy reading it. It's it's nice when they match, you know, mesh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes have you noticed the ones you think are gonna go really well generally tank, and the ones you think that
1: are going to tank generally do really well. <laughs>
0: Have you noticed I, that flipside yet?
1: Yeah, um, the piece that I wrote—a piece that basically um, flipped the script. When you know we are so used to talk about talking about, you know, our owners willing to spend money on the team, and that's the standard way that we frame conversations about salaries and so forth. And the reality is, these owners—they spend the money once when they buy the team. And that's it. And everything after that, the business pays for itself. You know, the revenues that they bring in pays the salaries of these guys. And, you know, I thought that was going to have more comments. And it ended up, you know, there was crickets there. But um, the piece, the corresponding piece that I wrote with it, which was about um, player empowerment, not really being player empowerment because the power comes, you know, like the Ben Simmons case, you know, he, he wants to get traded. He's demanding a trade. Oh, it's player empowerment. Well, it's not very empowering for the guys that are going to get traded to the Sixers. You know, those guys, you know, their, their situation hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is there's a player that's responsible for them being traded, not a general manager. And that got a huge number of comments, but I think that was in part because of you know simmons the simmons stuff being hot and we're celtics fans so there's a bit of schadenfreude whenever the uh whenever the sixers are are you know have dug a hole for themselves and can't dig their way out
0: yeah i mean this whole ben simmons stuff is crazy we spoke about it on i think it was last friday we kind of spoke about it a little bit just about the ripple effects and you've you've looked at it from a different angle you've looked at it as a ripple effect on an individual's life and uh, like their family life and how much that's going to actually uproot pr- probably multiple people if we're being honest we were talking about Ben Simmons package we looked at it like hey for as long as Ben Simmons sits out the Sixers aren't going to be that good we can't we don't really need to worry about them from a celtic standpoint really and then when they do make that trade who do we have to worry about then you know, like, are they going to – is Simmons going west or is he going to go somewhere else in the east? I'm pretty sure somehow Brooklyn will find a way of bringing him in for, like, I don't know, <laughs> Joe, Joe Harrison change. Obviously, financially, that's not possible. When we're looking at, like, so let's stand this Ben Simmons thing for a moment. Where would you say would be the best fit for Ben Simmons?
1: Um, you know, that is, that is so hard to say because he is such an odd – player. I mean, you've got a guy who, you know, he he legitimately had the physical tools to be the next Magic Johnson. I mean, he he plays the guard spot. He's almost seven foot tall. It's it is so rare to have a a guard that has frankly the height to see what's going on across the court. And he's done nothing with it. So it's very hard to say that, you know, trading him, you know, straight up for um, Lillard is going to improve situation, the situation for the Blazers, or, you know, if he goes to the Wolves, are the Wolves going to be able to get more out of him than the Sixers could? Because his, his rookie year stats and his stats from the past year are they're not? There is some improvement, but there's not the kind of improvement that you would expect to see out of a guy that's in. Um, is this his fourth? Did he just finish his fourth year as a um, as a pro? Because he was he was out the uh, he was out his rookie year. So
0: yeah, I mean, it's I, I still class it as the five just because you your contract's mm-hmm. been ticking down. But yeah, this yep. was his fourth year on the floor. Uh, for me, it's like you make a really good point. He came into the league very Magic Johnson-esque. Um, you know, LeBron James was kind of basically pandering to him, calling him the next king. And now we're at a point where we're like, hey, it's just a poor man's Draymond Green. So the, the fall from grace has been quite quite shocking. Obviously, for the Celtics fans, that's good. For like From Boston's standpoint, yeah. the, the, the less we see of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid together at the same time, the easier it looks to be able to roll over the Sixers. I'm concerned that he's going to go somewhere else East, but I just looking around, I'm like, right. So Chicago have made their moves. They don't really have much left in the wall chest. They've just brought in Lonzo. They're good. Brooklyn aren't going to make any moves there. Really Washington might try and kick the tires there a little bit just to try and pair him with Beal. But I just don't see Mm -hmm. what they'd be willing to give up and what they'd have to give up to make that work there. So there's a few teams around the East that, Makes sense to get Simmons, but don't really have the, the assets, which means he's going out West at that point, at which point we don't need to worry.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine him going to a team out West that is going to be a legit finals contender. So yeah, he, he goes out West. He basically disappears out of the lives of, of Boston fans. Um, I don't, you you know, you're right. There's, there's not a lot of teams in the East um, that, have a need for him that can put together a package that would be attractive to philly but the other side of it is you know with rivers like rivers said what he said and bead said what he said and that was like heat of the moment stuff and you can't get you know i'm i'm hesitant to come down too hard on those guys for what they said um after the sixers lost to the bucks um because that's heat of the moment stuff but the front office never made them walk that back and nobody in the front office countered that for months and so what that what that basically did is it set up you know a situation where the you know rivers and Embiid basically said you know we don't want simmons you know he's he's not you know an asset he's not he doesn't add value to the team. And now Simmons is basically saying, okay, this is what you want. This is what you have. There's no, you know, there's no, I'm not, I'm not going to play for your team. I'm done playing for the Sixers. So you don't want me, I'm gone. And they're not going to be a better team um, without him. I mean, they were kind of in a situation with Simmons where um, they, they didn't have an easy way out with him. they, they you know, his value, even if Embiid and Rivers hadn't said anything, his value tanked during that series. So, you know, they didn't have a good way out. They have to trade him. Um, they're not gonna because they do, they're not gonna get what they want to get. So, you know, I'm I'm curious just to see how it plays out.
0: The one thing I'm enjoying about this whole thing, and this is gonna be a good segue for us, is we you've mentioned a few times Embiid and Simmons, Embiid and Simmons. It's very much a duo. The league went through a very small phase where it was a duos league before Brooklyn decided yeah. to just put way later that and say no, we're going all super team, and then the Lakers said, Fine, you do that, we're gonna go into the Golden Girls and we're gonna bring back everybody that's nearly <laughs> on pitches. Um and it's you know, so now we're back to a super team league. But when you look around, there's still a lot of these duos that uh you know, Boston have drafted their duo, Philly have drafted their duo. There's been questions around fit in terms of Embiid and Simmons. But up until this year, really, until this summer, a lot of the questions remained on fit. They didn't remain on how well do these two guys get on get on off the floor. Yet for Boston, everything's based around how do Jaden and Jason get on off the floor? Because you know their fit's fine, so you need to find another angle to explore to try and uh, generate this narrative. And when Jalen came into the media yesterday and he was like, hey, we respect each of our our relationships built on respect. I want the best for Jason. Jason wants the best for me. And why can't that be enough? Why does everything then need to go down? Are these guys friends old? Does this mean that they're not going to be playing together in three or four years? But there's people at my work, and I think somebody put this as well. There's people at my work that I don't get on with. When I, like before I went freelance, there was people I didn't get on with. I'm sure in your day-to-day life, there's people that, you work really well with, but it doesn't mean that you're going for beers with them at the end of the day. And then you look at Tatum and Brown and like, who was the first person to celebrate with Tatum when Tatum got, at least on social media, when Tatum got back with a gold medal, he was with Jalen Brown in a nightclub. So obviously they are friends off the floor. So I've never known a narrative or I've never known anyone just, be like, just tell us your friends, please, please just tell us your friends. We need to hear that your friends.
1: Yeah, it's it's very weird. And it and it uh, I think part of it is the, um, you know, carry over from the um, Tatum and Beal grew up together. So maybe they should join forces. And it's like in basketball terms, that probably is not going to be what people think it is, you know, in terms of, you know, oh, well, you know, they're going to be, you know, the Celtics managed to do that and somehow keep Jalen Brown, they'll win, you know, more than 70 games. And it's like that, you know, you've got you've to play both ends of the court. And, you know, a guy like Beal and a guy like Tatum, even though they play different positions, they both need to be creators. And there's a real risk that, you know, if Tatum's working with the ball, Beal's just going to be standing there, which does not help. That doesn't make Tatum's life. Any simpler and it doesn't make Beals life any simpler so I think part of that is this whole we've got to have friends you know everybody's got to be friends everybody wants to play with their friends and I think you know the relationship between Tatum Brown is um, you know Brown has a very different focus off the court than Tatum does and I think what you're seeing there is that Tatum, you know, Tatum and Brown, they, you know, they're fine, but are they going to hang out at, you know, each other's house uh, on an off night playing video games? Probably not because they've got different interests. And I think that's what people are missing is you can like somebody, have a lot of respect for them, and not necessarily need to pal around with them Every minute that you're off the court, um, you can be friends with somebody and have totally different interests in major areas of your life. And I think that's where, I think that's where Smart and where Brown and where Tate and where these guys are at. I mean, I liked what Smart said um, during the media days where he said that everybody on the team loved everybody else. I mean, there weren't the the interpersonal frictions that you saw in, 2018 2019 um so i think they they like each other but they don't you know they don't have the same hobbies and and side pursuits and so they're not going to be crashing each other's you know instagram posts or whatever all the time and i think and i think that's fine i mean i think that's healthy you
0: say healthy and um that's kind of the word that i'd look for because when you look at it from the fact of you're with these guys 24 7 when you're on when you're on um the away when you're going away you're playing what well, on the road there we go i lost my wording you're on the plane together you're at the hotel together you're practicing together and then you win in the games together and then you come back to boston and you go away and you're back with your families and stuff there is such thing as just too much of somebody so everyone's mm. like hey Jalen and jason aren't friends or they they're not hanging out together like these guys probably see each other more than they see their own family or their own friends that they grew up with. How much more do you want them to just move in together? Do they need an <laughs> apartment? Is, is this where we're at? And that's kind of the mentality that I've been approaching this whole, like it reared its head again this year. It was here. It, the same questions were there last year. Uh, it's just, it becomes frustrating because you're like, hey, you you really want, like the whole narrative is based around, we want Jason and Jalen in Boston long term. We want them to sign to play out this contract extension and then sign a new one. And we want them for their best years. But at the same time, building these narratives, pushing this agenda is exactly what drives players away from a franchise because of that that external factors that we could call it, whether it be the media, whether it be the fans on social media, whether it's a blend of the both. And, And I'm just like, there's not much more they can say other than just being like, hey, yeah, we're moving in together and we're going to, like, you know, this is how we're going to live because it's how everybody's asking us to. I just don't mm-hmm. know how much, what much what else people want them to say.
1: Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a variation of what fans did with um, Gordon Hayward, um, especially the last couple years that he was in Boston, where you had um, fans dissecting his home life on the basis of Instagram uh, posts you know there was all of this fan speculation about you know Robin Hayward being a handful and Gordon not being happy you know at home and I just I looked at that and I thought, you know the there's there's how many minutes in a day how many seconds in a day and you get. An Instagram post, and then two days later, there's another Instagram post, and you've seen two snapshots out of you know somebody's you know three days or four days of life, and you try to draw conclusions from that. And what I rem- uh, what it reminds me of is um, in uh, 1960 when um, Mickey Mantle. And Roger Maris were, you know, competing for the home run title. And um, Roger Maris... Um You know, there was a lot of stories in the New York media and in the, in the newspapers that they didn't get along and that they were feuding. And they built this up off of anonymous sources and stuff that they heard secondhand and stuff that they read into that they saw go on on the field. And they were roommates. They, you know, they lived. Both of them had home, had homes away from New York. So when they were playing during the baseball season, they lived in hotels. And they lived in the they lived in the same hotel on at in New York and on the road. And they got along fine. And there was nothing that they could do to stop that. Because once that story gets going, then you can't put it out because anything that you say, the people that believe it just say, Oh, well, they're just lying. You know, they're just lying because they don't want you know the the, the truth to be known. So it's kind of, you know, that's kind of what I see going on with Jalen and Jason is that, you know, obsessive fans need something to obsess over. And this is what they've chosen for this season.
0: I mean, first of all, shout out Robin Hayward because um she's the one that hooked me up with that Gordon Hayward interview to, uh, just before the beginning of last season. So big shout out to Robin. Anybody that didn't catch that, it's in the archives. Make sure to go check that out. Before we, like, so you've just mentioned, okay, so you've kind of took my brain. I want what we were going to talk about, what my plan was to talk about, was your big picture, uh, your overview of the off season? But you mentioned New York, and it's uh, I had a bit of a Twitter discussion with somebody from New York um, from Nick's Twitter yesterday. Very friendly, nothing untoward at all. But his premise was like, "Hey, Kemba Walker at nine million a year, it, and with the same say, Kemba Walker still has any issues and he misses some back-to-backs and he's gonna sit some games out." But Kemba Walker at nine million a year for New York in a position of need where they've struggled for years is much better than Kemba Walker as he was for Boston last year. And the narrative in my mind, I'm like, hey, yeah, that's fine. Like you're looking at it financially and you're saying, hey, we're getting a ke- the same Kemba that you were paying 30 plus million for for nine million. But do you think so? My where I'm going with this is, do you think that Kemba Walker this year? for New York is going to be able to um, give the same type of performances as what he gave for Boston last year. And then do you think his knees are going to hold up under a Thibodeau system?
1: Well, that's, that's the thing is um, I don't think, you know, if, if Thibodeau had only on rare occasions, um, you know, overworked his guys you could say hey maybe he'll go easy on Kemba but I think honestly he's gonna he's gonna ride Kemba like a he's gonna drive him like a rented mule and it's 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 hard to see how it's gonna go how it's gonna go well um he's you know I would I would like to see Kemba do well even if it's for the Knicks because um you know the 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 pattern with free agent signings in Boston seems to be year one, I can't believe we've got this guy. year two, um, I think this guy's overpaid, and year three is get rid of him and that's that's what happened with kemba is it was like this is uh, this is great. he's a great guy, and by the end of this year you know, people wanted him gone and, and were, you know, downright hateful in what they were saying about this guy. And I mean, I, I hope he does good, but I do think that, you know, with what the Celtics were paying him, um, you know, he would need to be a starter and I don't think he's an 80 game a year, you know, 28 to 32-minute-a-game uh, guy anymore. And I I don't know that he, that he will be in the future. And that kind of leaves the Knicks, you know, scrambling to have somebody as a backup and also the possibility that Tibbs will just completely sour on Kemba at some point because he's not available and just, you know, write him off and, and stick him on the bench.
0: So here's my concern. You've pointed out, You get those three years, you get the one good year where everyone's absolutely ecstatic to have you. Then it's overpaid, then it's getting him out of here. And when Kemba first came to Boston, one of the biggest talking points was Kemba's going to need to play off ball more. Both to accentuate the Jays, allow them to get their shots up and to kind of take some of that pressure off of his legs because of the miles he'd already put on them while he was in Charlotte, right? And now we're looking at Dennis Schroeder. And we're saying, oh, I can't believe we've got Dennis Schroeder. Granted, it's a one year deal, so you don't have to worry about the overpay or wanting him out. If you want to get rid of him, he goes at the end of the year. But you look at, like, well, Schroeder's, you need Schroeder off ball, but a bit. Schroeder's got some miles on his legs. If Schroeder's going to be effective, assuming he gets minutes with Jalen and Jason, then there's going to have to be times where he plays without the ball in his hands. And do you, so do you think that A, Schroeder is capable of playing off ball? And B, do you think by the end of this year, everyone's going to be like, "Oh, I can't wait for Schroeder to be out the door."
1: I think um, <clears throat> what's going to be interesting about Schroeder is um, how uh, how his attitude plays with with Boston fans because um, he, I mean, he was a he was a he was a stinker uh, that series with, um, with Atlanta in, uh, 2016, I think it was, um, he, um, he enjoys being a pest. Um, and what I'm going to be curious about is to see how Udoka runs his rotations, because I know he came out, um, it was either yesterday or Tuesday and said that he was thinking that, um, he always wanted to have either Jalen or Jason on the court, which means a lot of, you know, one of the two of them getting a lot of, you know, time with the second unit, which would be with Schroeder as, as the uh, point guard. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, first of all, my thought was that one of the reasons why you bolstered the bench the way that you did with, you know, bringing in Josh Richardson and uh, Schroeder is so that you didn't have to run. So you could platoon your starters and you could play them as a unit or more of them as a unit than than you have in the past couple of years. But um I think that is a good question because the Celtics have had a huge problem creating offense from their bench um for the past two years. And if Schroeder needs to have the ball in his hands then you're kind of you know creating a situation where he might end up being like Marcus Smart off the bench where Marcus Smart off the bench took way too many shots but it was because he was around a bunch of guys that couldn't shoot and in Schroeder's case you know he may be taking shots because he would rather keep the ball and and make a play himself than give up the ball to somebody else and basically end up you know out of the play because he doesn't know how to move off the ball like you know um one of the things that you know an under underrated aspect of ray allen's game um was and it's one of the reasons why he hit as many three-point shots as he did Um, is because he was as good as anybody at doing baseline cuts he was he was exceptionally good at moving without the ball he would he would dodge his man on you know the right side of the baseline and then the next thing you know he'd be in the left corner um catching a pass for a three and you know with schroeder's height he's not going to be playing the baseline but he has to be willing to move after he passes the ball because you know otherwise if you if you don't move if you take yourself out of the play then the defense can basically ignore you and that gives the defense somebody free to focus on the ball handler or to you know a more promising target for the ball handler and you know defense you know, the more you have to make the defense think, the better your offense is going to be. So, yeah, I I just, like you said, he, he seems to need the ball, and I'm hoping that he can, you know, adjust that um, playing with the second unit. So I've said this
0: on this podcast before, but um, I went back and watched every possession that Schroeder had last year um, from both offensively and defensively. And one of the biggest questions I had was, are his assist numbers for real? Because the assists come in all shapes and sizes, right? Like, it's the, not every assist is creation. And, you know, it could be a bailout pass that somebody ended up finishing the opportunity on. And then you get the credit for that pass. And when I looked at what Schroeder does, a lot of Schroeder's assists come off of bailout passes or when the defense has shut down his primary option. So, say he comes off a screen and drives right. If the defense cut off that right drive, right hand side drive, instead he'll instead of resetting the offense, he'll give the pass, which is the right decision, but you've probably wasted fifteen seconds of the clock. So now whoever's getting the ball has to create something for themselves, and then Schroeder gets accredited with the assist because of that. Now, obviously, not every assist was like that. Some were genuinely pl- genuine playmaking, but a lot of them were, "Hey, my scoring opportunity has been taken away." Here you go. It's your opportunity to score now, and I'll still look good because I get the assist. So moving off ball to me is very important. Um, I said this on the last um, on Wednesday's episode. Udoka preaching selflessness. For me, that doesn't just mean making a pass. It means doing doing stuff off ball that you don't get credit for, that you don't that people don't talk about after the game. It's it's being off ball and making those baseline cuts. It's Doing a forty-five cut from the wing to the to the low block to drag a defender out the way to open up a driving lane, it's setting those off-ball screens, being a winning screener, a winning cutter, and for for Schroeder to be at his most valuable to this second unit or to the first unit, then he needs to be willing to do this off-ball stuff consistently. Otherwise, he's just going to become a ball sticker. And if the ball continues to stick in his hands, you've got guys like Pratt and Pritchard that'll be more than willing to eat up those minutes.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, um, a lot of that uh, comes down to coaching and to coachability because these guys, I mean, these guys are the best of the best. Um, they, they can learn how to do certain things even if they haven't been asked to do them for five or six years. For their whole pro career, nobody has said Hey I want you to do this when you don't have the ball. If you're coachable, if you've got a coach that can explain you know how you do that, how you read the defense, how you know, and stuff that um, again, you don't and and this comes down to coaching too is a coach has to be willing and able to um, recognize and commend players for things that are never going to show up in stats. They're not going to come up with an advanced stat that's going to measure the ability of a weak side player to retain the attention of his defender. But that is something that is incredibly important that you lock up somebody so that they can't help. And, you know, it's it's a combination of do you have a coach that can teach these things? Um, are the players going to listen? And is the coach gonna recognize them for doing what he's asking them to do so that they can feel invested in the outcome, even if it doesn't show up on the statute?
0: And that's the question, because not only do you need to have the the coachability, you need you need to have the willingness. And that that was my biggest concern. Like when um, when Schroeder first came to Boston, I'm a lot higher on him now than I was before I went and watched those plays. Uh, but when he first came, I was very much like, I don't know how I feel about this. I feel like this could just be dropping a live grenade into a very harmonious locker room. <laughs> um, I still kind of feel that way a little bit. I feel like, you know, if there's going to be any rumblings of discontent in that locker room. I've got a feeling that um, Dennis Schroeder's is going to be right in the middle of it and he's going to be the gravitational pull towards that discontent. I also think that he also holds a lot of the keys in terms of the ceiling for this team. Just because if you have somebody like Schroder that, that is capable that we've seen capable of being a potential six man of the year that could become one of the best um point guards off the bench in the league, then you also that means that elevates everything around him on that second unit, and you can now start to feel really good about your chances when you go deep into the playoffs and you need fresh legs. So I think that he's going to be a very big swing factor this year, but it's that willingness for me. Like, I feel like the coaching staff that they've brought in are going to be very capable of coaching these new methods, but it's whether or not players are willing to um, to actually listen and apply those new methods once game time's come and you start reverting back to what feels comfortable, where the muscle memory is, looking for your mm-hmm. own spots. And I think that's the difference between coachability and willingness to implement what you've been coach done because it's so much easier to just revert back to where you're comfortable. And that's kind of going to be the teething issues for the first few months if, in my opinion for all players, not just Schroeder.
1: Yep, yeah. And I think you know that's that's gonna be um the case with Jalen and Jason as well. Um on you know on Schroeder he he says that you know what he wants to do more than anything else is he wants to win and that's why he came to Boston um, was because, you know, money-wise, it wasn't as much of a deal as it was, hey, of the teams that are interested, this these this team has the best chance to win. And if that's the case, and if he sees the connection between adapting his game and winning, I think he'll buy into it if if he's being honest about winning being that important to him. But I mean, you hit on a thing with Jason and Jalen that I think is so important, Um, John Corrales did an article about uh, Giannis um, passing the ball during the Eastern Conference Finals to guys who were missing their shots, and what he said was that it was the right basketball move, and Giannis knew that it was the right move to make even though these guys were missing the shots. And that's something, that's a level of awareness that I want to see Jalen and Jason get to because what's comfortable for, that, for them is to try to make the shot themselves if they come down and things don't shake out quite how they want it to look. Um, you know, Tatum especially has a habit of signaling that he's going to keep the ball so clearly that you can see it from, you know, the couch at home. And if that's the case, the defender knows it as well. And these guys need to get out of the habit of falling back on that. And they need to say, look, I'm going to pass it. I'm going to pass it to this guy. He might not make the shot, but what I'm doing is I am teaching the defense that if I've got the ball, I am not going to keep the ball. And that is going to make it easier for me when I do want to keep the ball because they won't know that that's what I'm intending to do. And that's that's where he needs to, you know, Tatum especially, needs to grow as a player is to stop relying on that, you know, that old those old habits, those ingrained habits from the past couple of years.
0: Yeah, it's all about having that passing gravity. We hear people talk about scoring gravity all the time. But when when def- well, sorry defences have to account for passing lanes as well, so now they can't push upon you too close because yep. now they're giving up the clean passing lane. It's that it's that complete package. It's the passing gravity and the scoring gravity. And you saw Tatum kind of lean into that for very small um, spurts last season. There were times where he was utilising, you know, he'd run a pick and roll and get a nice pocket pass off or he'd, hit a swing pass off a dribble drive penetration and then on the next play he'd go for the same thing but d- defences were worried about the pass and then he'd take you to the hoop and he was leaning on that but it is again as you say it's it's very easy to revert back to where you feel comfortable for all of us if somebody told me to drive at 10 and 2 I've been driving for a while i I'm as soon as 2-3 three, three minutes I'm back to one hand and one, I'm, I drive stick because I'm in the UK everyone drives stick <laughs> but I'm back to one hand on the wheel one hand on to, on the uh on the gear stick because that's what's the old habit you always go back to where the comfortability factor is now the last thing i want to hit on with you before i let you get out of here is basically just with the cat your... <laughs> the cat can join in man um <laughs> is basically what's your overview of the offseason how do you feel about the moves brad stevens made as his first um offseason as president of basketball operations
1: um i i think he did really well i mean The, you know, in a situation where you lose Kemba Walker and you lose um, Evan Fournier, and um, you know, you look at Kemba Walker and say, Kemba Walker out the door, Al Horford in. That that's not much of a loss. Um, Evan Fournier out. That's not that bad of a deal, given that he only played sixteen games for the Celtics. Um, And what you know. That you know, aside from that, um the Celtics weak spot was their bench um I think the you know concerns about the starting five are overblown, given how everybody was sick or injured last season, and that the the Celtics probable starting five this year um you know had almost no time on the court together um so I think the starting five, the starting rotation, um, and the sixth man spot, um, you know, are good, and they bolstered the bench. So that, to me, is you know, outs- and, you know, an excellent move. He's he certainly had a better offseason than Daryl Morey has. You know, that's a fact.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's um, that <laughs> that tickled me. I like that one uh no i think he's had a great year too i think well great summer i should say it hasn't been a year yet um i'm interested to see what he does between now and the trade deadline i know he kind of alluded to if there's a move to be made and we think it's going to work then we're going to do it but richard man rich sorry um thank you very much for joining me today before we go do you want to let everyone know where they can find your work if there's anything you're working on you want to plug uh the floor's yours man
1: sure um twitter at rich a jensen um I will tweet about just about everything I've uh, written some stuff for Ars technica. Um, hope to have some more stuff coming out there and, um, got, uh, uh, you know, if the article that I wrote a couple weeks ago about me becoming a Celtics fan, um, this Sunday, the, uh, companion piece, which is how my dad became a Celtics fan, um, is going to be, is going to hit. And it's, um, uh, It's a fun, you know, fun deal. My dad grew up in a tiny, tiny town um, and, uh, you know, learned how to play basketball. And as he put it, all you needed out there was a flat spot and a hoop. So hopefully, um, you know, you'll enjoy that.
0: Well, um, when you tweet that out, I'll definitely reshare it. Uh, So if you're following me, you'll see, if you're following the Celtics blog account, you'll see uh, the how rich became a fan will be linked to the podcast and to the youtube if you are watching on youtube make sure to hit that subscribe button if you are listening to this on a mobile device or on uh, an Alexa or something make sure to leave that five star written review you know the score by now if you can't leave a review because you don't have the apple device then you know just word of mouth is perfect word of mouth is awesome best form of advertising rich thank you for joining me man i really appreciate you taking the time
1: all right hey happy to be here Ain't
0: disrespecting
1: you haters. I ain't sweating your opinion. Y'all been testing my patience. Never did it for a check. I've been impressed with the. Fit.